China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Chris Buckley, China correspondent for The New York Times. Today, we'll be discussing the plight of intellectuals in the Xi Jinping era. Chris, thanks for joining the podcast. It's a pleasure, Jude. You have been watching and interacting with Chinese intellectuals and academics of various stripes for for decades. And in fact, I went and looked up the very first email I wrote to you trying to uh, weasel a meeting in Beijing. And I noticed in the email that I had actually been given your email and had been put in contact by Zhang Hongliang, who is the the neo-Maoist intellectual at Minzu University which just shows the quality of people that you were hanging out with. So it just strikes me that you have been looking at both left and right for a very long time in China. So I thought a helpful place to start for us would be if I could ask you to do a bit of a, a level setting or at least a broad overview of where does intellectual discourse stand today compared to, say, 10 years ago? And Back then, there was a relatively robust, relatively being the operative word there, robust level of intellectual innovation and discussion. I know you and I discussed a lot, a really clear set of individuals, publications, and institutions across a left to right spectrum. And I want to ask where those stand today. And the, the motivation for this question is, I think there's a general view that intellectual discourse is all but dead in China. And owing to the prolonged campaign of domestic repression, under the Xi Jinping era. So I want to ask you to think through that and help just set the scene for us of how much has changed over this, this past decade. As you were asking that question, Jude, I was sort of doing a snapshot comparison in my mind of what it was like in Beijing, say, let's say about 10 years ago or 2009, 2010, compared to now. And I guess the most striking thing is that back then, as a journalist, it would be possible to go out in Beijing, particularly around Haidian District, where the universities are concentrated. And there would be seminars that you could attend, independent think tanks like Unirule and the Transition Institute would be having meetings, or you could drop by and talk to people. In other words, there was this pretty lively ecology of liberal intellectuals, human rights lawyers, and general hangers-on that formed a subworld of, of liberal intellectual life, including in the universities, which I think if we now take that snapshot to the present has, has largely been eradicated. It certainly hasn't disappeared entirely, but its voice has been largely stilled. Unirule, of course, has been shut down. The Transition Institute that was very lively then has been closed. The magazine, Yehuan Chunqiu, the history magazine that performed a forum or a meeting place for many of these people, has been gutted and turned into a pro-party journal. So all of that has disappeared. Now, now that doesn't mean that the scene has been entirely eviscerated. There's certainly a number of interesting people around. It's still possible to have interesting liberal intellectuals have things to say, but they don't have the platforms now, such as the seminar meetings, such as the publications, to disseminate their ideas in the way that they did before. I, I think, as you were saying in your introduction, though, as a journalist, one thing I have tried to overcome is almost inherent in bias in when working in China to talk to liberal critics of the government and the Communist Party. So I did and have always made an effort to listen to and to talk to people of different stripes, including, as you said, like even 
neo-Maoists, but also nationalists or pro-party academics, whose voices others may not disagree with, but I think are an important part of understanding where China is headed. Also, thinking back about someone like a Zhang Hongliang or some of the neo-Maoists, even what we'd call the left or the conservative left or the opposition to liberals weren't all uniformly pro-party in their intellectual agendas 10 years ago either. So the pluralism strikes me that not only a left or right, but even intra-left and intra-right was pretty robust back then. No, that's, that's very true. And there is this stream or tradition of thought in contemporary China that gets called the new left, the neo-left. But as you were saying, Jude, if you go back to its emergence in the 1990s and into the earlier 2000s, it was often, at least in part, from a kind of critique or even opposition to the direction of the party carried by the conviction that the Communist Party had become, in a sense, infected by capitalist thinkers and capitalist influence, and therefore it was up to the new left to rescue China and the party from these influences. And you know, somebody like Zhang Hongliang was certainly a very active voice uh, at that time. I think what, what has happened then in terms of the shifts in intellectual life in China is that critical new left, that oppositionist element to the new left, has also in a sense been silenced as well. And insofar as the new left has survived and maintained its influence and its voice in China, it's now much more seen as an ally of the party's agenda. And you will see the intellectuals then who at least tried to present themselves as somewhat critical of the direction of the party and now, if not entirely cheerleaders, then they're certainly much more closer to the party's messaging than they were then. It's a bit of a, a speculative question, but I'm curious why it is that Xi Jinping felt or was unable to be able to deal with the level of intellectual pluralism that existed 10 years ago. Is this simply that they looked out at both the left and right and saw that, that level of civic engagement as being fundamentally threatening to, to the party, or, or is there something else going on? A good question. I feel I can offer only a partial answer. First thing is, I, I think you know, we certainly seen, have seen the severe constriction of liberal intellectual life under Xi Jinping. It's also important to remember that that constriction, the beginnings of it certainly predated his emergence in power as well. So even under Hu Jintao, certainly in the last few years of his tenure, I'm thinking, of course, of the, the arrest of Liu Xiaobo and other events back then, even then, the sphere of intellectual life was beginning to shrink. Now, why did Xi Jinping then, I think, vastly accelerate this trend? I think perhaps there's a couple of elements to that. First of all, you know, he comes into power in 2012 when there's an atmosphere of incipient crisis in China. You know, there's a sense that corruption in the party has reached a dangerous levels, that there's social discord and discontent that is certainly not at the stage where it was threatening the party, but was becoming a worrisome trend. I think Xi Jinping felt that this intellectual dissent, including dissenters within the party as well, was undermining the party's authority. Now, part of that is sort of him and other leaders projecting into the future how these seeds of discontent can bloom into larger oppositionist movements. I think part of it, though, is if you do look at the scene back then, you know, there, there is a sort of a this cross-fertilization between these liberal thinkers in law schools and the emergence of the rights lawyers as a movement as well. So that these lawyers who are using the law to contest and to try to limit the reach of arbitrary party power are in a sense inspired and underwritten by their law professors who have infused them with the ideas of law and rule of law in particular as a tool or a weapon that can be used to, to contest the party's arbitrary power. So I think part of what you also see is this fear in the party that is magnified after Xi Jinping comes to power, 
that one thing that the party has to act against is the possibility of these intellectual dissenters or oppositionists forming cross-class alliances or cross-group alliances with lawyers, with other parts of society, that could become a greater source of opposition to the party. And that certainly seemed to be what was motivating the, the crackdown several years ago on these uh, Marxist student groups who were then allying with disaffected workers in southern China. It was precisely for the party, this toxic stew of, as you were saying, sort of heterogeneous groups coming together over shared grievances or shared issues. And obviously, I've always thought that the party understands well that big things start small you know, for an organization that started with just over a dozen people in a room in Shanghai in 1921, they, they certainly know to be aware of it, you know, incipient movements. Yes. And now you mentioned it, Jude, if those dozen people hiding in a room in Shanghai back a century ago were on WeChat or Weibo or one of these very potent new tools of, of social media, then of course, then you can understand why the party these days would be even more worried. So of course, all of this anxiety is also against this background of the expansion of the internet in China, and how certainly for certain times there it was becoming a very, you know, parts of it were becoming a lively forum for these ideas and the way in which your students, say, in Hunan province or a, a high school kid in Sichuan could suddenly latch on to ideas that were being shared by academics and rights lawyers in Beijing or Shanghai, for example. As we're having this discussion, it's reinforcing to me one of the deficiencies of our current discussion of China's political trajectory or this idea that there was this, the Communist Party ended up where it did today through deterministic logic or teleological logic. It sort of had to get here. And it's always been hardwired that the party was going to end up where it is in 2020. And always missing out of that story was were, were intellectual voices in China. And you can see through tracking the undulations of in intellectual discourse that looking back at whether it's the lead up to WTO accession in the late 1990s, that neo-Maoists, or, or they weren't neo-Maoists then, but sort of leftist conservatives were deeply worried that China was becoming a capitalist nation that was, through integration and engagement, was going to lose its colors. And then again, looking at the pluralism, the relative pluralism of the mid-2000s, technology did have a liberating influence. It wasn't always a tool for repression. It seems that but the party quickly learned that. And so the trajectory of China has been as much about reaction to domestic currents and discourse and civic engagement, rather than I think how we frame it from the United States right now, which is this decades long quest for power and global domination. And that's why they're doing everything. And it just has left out really one of the most interesting, important components of this, which is domestic discourse and engagement. Yeah, I think precisely. And you know, we're talking about intellectual life today, and it's not as if all 1.3, 1.4 billion Chinese people are avidly reading what, say, Yang Hun Chunqiu was publishing or following the thoughts of Zhang Hongliang or somebody like that. But what you did find with the internet and with the emergence of a more prosperous China that has more money to buy books and go online is that more and more people were becoming interested in these ideas and our students in particular. And so yeah, I, I think that conversation about where China had come from and where it was going and where it should go was one that intellectual voices often dominated, but it was one in which there was a sort of a, a much wider ecology as well. And sort of brings me back to thinking of Guangzhou in the earlier 2000s of, as well, which think of it as a sort of a almost obsessively a business city. But if you went down to Guangzhou, you know, say 2008, 2009 or earlier, you know, that the southern metropolitan or southern daily newspaper and media group with this very lively stable of quite liberal publications 
and then the relatively tolerant atmosphere in Guangzhou and the universities there that had a number of very interesting academics and departments that formed a very interesting scene that has now disappeared as well. So, you know, we're talking a lot about Beijing. It's important to remember this scene, this community extended well beyond the national capital. I wanted to pivot and ask you about a recent story that you published, which got a lot of attention, in part because, again, for so long, there's just been this relatively flat narrative that all intellectual discourse is dead in China. But you spoke to several individuals who fit under the label of, of statist, and, and the name of the piece was Clean Up This Mess, the Chinese thinkers behind Xi Jinping's hard line. And I was just rereading your piece earlier today and doing some reading around statism, and I was, again, rereading the magnificent Xu Jilin article, The Spectre of Leviathan, and he writes in it, statism puts the state front and center and takes the building of state power and state capacity as the central objectives of modernity. Under statism, the state is no longer understood as a tool to realize the interests of citizens. The state itself is a good and has an autonomous state rationality. The state is an end in itself. There are times when I read Xi Jinping's writings and you read about governance reform and, and state capacity, and it, you do see a thread there where state power is the ultimate objective and things like rejuvenation or some of these other campaigns are essentially dressing for what is a more naked campaign to construct an all-powerful state edifice. But I wanted to ask you, we had, I think, spoken before your story was you had come out and you were doing some reading and digging around. I wonder if you can explain a bit about how you came to find this story and these individuals interesting. What were the questions that you were trying to answer when you began reading their writings and talking to them? Well, I have been reading a number of these people for many years. I'd always felt Frustrated that in reporting on China, reporting on intellectual life in particular, without wanting to, it often seemed that the stories did often tend to focus on liberal Chinese intellectuals and their fate, especially their increasingly gloomy fate under Xi Jinping, you know, being forced out of work, uh, sometimes being arrested, and so on. And I, I, I always felt that as important as those stories are, it was also important to remind readers that there are other bodies of thought, other ideas at work in China, which depart from those liberal traditions that people in the West probably think of as the mainstream, the artery of intellectual life. And as I think you'd know, Jude, going back to the 1980s and 1990s, you can see the emergence of other schools of thought in China that depart from what we think of as sort of Western-inspired liberal thinking. And these ideas are often coalescing around the questions about how do you build a Chinese government, a Chinese state, in particular a Chinese party state, that can fulfill the historic mission that many of these academics and Commerce Party leadership as a whole see China as destined to fulfill. And that is how do you build a state which makes China strong and prosperous within, but also ensures its rise or its return to the international stature that these Chinese intellectuals and thinkers believe that China rightfully should exert in the world. So it is a body of thought that certainly evolved over time and has shifted since the 1990s. But I did see, uh, you know, especially after Xi Jinping came to power, while liberal voices were being stilled, these voices were increasingly influential in debates about different issues. And you can point, for example, to debates earlier on about ethnic policy. You can also look to the emerging discussions about the future of Hong Kong, even before Xi Jinping comes to power, that point to these much more statist or centralist ideas about how China should deal with this former colony. 
So I, I did come to that story with these ideas in mind. I have to confess, this story has a long provenance. It goes back to last year when the Communist Party held its plenary session in October last year and announced the idea of national security legislation for Hong Kong. I thought then might be a good opportunity to sort of break out a story about these people and their possible influence on issues like Hong Kong. And then I was working on it. Other things got in the way. COVID-19 happened. I thought that story was dead. I wasn't quite sure how I could ever resurrect it as a news piece. And then, of course, earlier this year, the Chinese authorities announced that they would be introducing their national security legislation for Hong Kong, which I thought reflected at least some of the background influence of these thinkers. So that's why I then worked to pull this story together in the way that it came out. Is this an intellectual movement, statism, in the sense that are there individuals who identify, self-identify as statists who are looking to develop, expand, refine what statism is, what it means in the Chinese context, and how it can serve objectives? Or is this just simply a, a, a fixed body, which is now just about implementing or motivating force behind laws, regulations, or, or existing objectives that the party state has? Right. Uh, first of all, when it comes to what does one label these thinkers or this body of thought, it's rare that you'll come across a status thinker in China who will proudly describe him or herself as a statist. You know, it's it's, it's a term of opprobrium or, or criticism that often these academics will say they don't particularly like. But that's, you know, that's the, the new left didn't like be calling new left. Neo-Maoists did not like being called neo-Maoists. So, so they're always labels of opprobrium, I guess. That's right. But it still is a useful label, to, I think, to describe in general the direction of thought of these thinkers. I guess the heart of your question, though, is are these people, as their critics both within and outside China would say, simply hacks who are providing sort of uh, intellectual theoretical decoration for the party's predetermined policies? Now, it would be extremely foolish to say that there is no hackery going on in China these days. You know, you can open up any journal or publication, you'll see you know, a great deal of dross being written about party policies, which is pure apologia. But I think simply to reduce these thinkers and this body of thought to simply describing it as sort of high-minded hack work probably understates its influence and its importance. I think partly that is because even the most powerful leader, even Xi Jinping at his most powerful, has the power to enunciate these ideas about, for example, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and its emergence as a great power in the 21st century. But elaborating on those ideas, providing intellectual rationales for them, imagining ways in which you can implement those ideas, imagining a future in which those ideas evolve is intellectual work. And it's not intellectual work that is simply carried out in universities. But nonetheless, I think these academics and thinkers do play a role in sort of not simply defending what the party is going about, but also thinking through the scenarios or thinking through the possibilities for implementing those ideas. And I think to some extent, Hong Kong is an example of that. And that's a that's a good point. It actually ties in with something you and I were talking about before we clicked record, which is by the time this podcast comes out, this may be a, a well-trodden issue, but there's a focus this week and probably for a few more weeks on this idea of dual circulation. And one of the things that we were talking about and that we've spent a bit working on over the past week is there's not much to the policy set yet. It's really a broad set of objectives or idea. And now it's really up to 
academics, regulators, think tanks in China to start now fleshing out what this is. And, and this is where I think some of these intellectual framings come to bear because they will now start sketching out what the guts of dual circulation is. And so to your point about Xi Jinping's ability to articulate broad slogans or, or signals or directions they want to move in, but it's really the foot soldiers who make that real and instantiate that. And so the intellectual currents that are, are at work here are, are significantly important for determining what the outcome of something like dual circulation will be. Precisely. And this whole idea of dual circulation seems to be driven by a desire to add urgency to shifting China's growth model to greater reliance on domestic demand and domestic innovation. But along the way, I think, as you're saying, Jude, we're already seeing that this conversation, this discussion in China about what it means also brings in questions about how do you imagine China's future international status to what extent does China have to assume that there's going to be deepening conflict with the United States and other advanced economies? Or to what extent do you use this idea of dual circulation to perhaps even blunt this emerging so-called new Cold War between China and the United States? So yes, I think even in sort of a, a relatively abstract or you know, even forbidding concept like dual circulation, you can see how even if Xi Jinping has laid down a, a general direction, there's still some scope in China for discussing, working out what that means. In the end, he and the party will be the ultimate arbiter of what ideas and what proposals win out. But nonetheless, we're seeing at the moment, there is a discussion underway about exactly what to make of this idea. It raises a question of looking out at what is likely to be, or is almost certain to be, an international environment or an external environment for China, which as, as Xi Jinping rightly diagnoses, will be increasingly difficult and volatile for China. What impact do you think this next period of conflict with the United States, but also China's diagnosis that there's a, a larger containment effort underway, how does that impact the space or the shape of intellectual discourse in China? And I, I was struck by your comment earlier, which I think is right and is, again, how we're refining our idea that everything started in November or October 2012 when Xi Jinping came to power and understanding that many of these trends were underway prior to his arrival, even if the, the volume got turned up significantly when he was there. And of course, the period from 2008, 2009 through 2012 was one of not only domestic internal strife and volatility, things like the Wenzhou train crash and the, re the resulting, you know, Weibo outpouring of criticism, Bo Xilai, but you also had Edward Snowden. You also had color revolutions, which that phrase shows up again and again. So the external environment obviously frames intellectual discourse in an important way. So I wonder if you had any thoughts on what the next chapter of discourse will look like in China, given these you know, emerging realities of global confrontation. I dare not predict where things are headed. I think one factor that does come into play in China, as in many countries these days, is that these, you know, th these ideas that we generally associate with liberalism, such as rule of law, such as universal human rights, such as the idea of limited government, which is constrained by separation of powers and an independent judiciary. You know, th this cluster of liberal ideas has been under attack, not just in China, but of course in other parts of the world as well. And in a sense, it's been in retreat and has been suffering self-doubts as well. And we've seen, of course, that happening in parts of Eastern Europe, in Russia, in a sense, in the United States and other Western democracies as well. So before I left China, you know, in those conversations in the months of late last year and earlier this year, I can't say I spend all these conversations talking about the future of liberalism, but, you know, often we come up with a friend from that camp of thought, like, 
not simply where China is going, but where liberalism as a set of values is headed as well. You know, I worry that these ideas are not just in retreat in China because of attacks from the party, but because of other developments in the world and a growing sense of self-doubt within the liberal tradition more broadly understood that it has the wherewithal to cope with all of these changes in the world. That said, I think it is important to remember in China that although these voices of criticism or dissent have certainly been silenced publicly in China, in private conversation, you still do get a wide diversity of views from people. And you do find that people who privately may be willing to conform with you know, official messaging, nonetheless, are much more critical of the direction that the country has taken. I do think it's important to take seriously this body of thought that we've been describing it as statism. This idea that China does have a particular special destiny in the world, and that that destiny of returning China to greatness depends on the creation of a strong, unified Chinese state with a very assertive sense of Chinese sovereignty. That idea does have an audience in China, of course, to some extent, an enthusiastic official audience and official backing as well. But it's also a message that I think does have resonate with a lot of Chinese people as well. And so when, you know, when thinking about China's future through the prism of these ideas, I do think it's important to take those ideas seriously and to understand that they do have a constituency in China and they do have a life of their own. So in other words, they're not simply an artifact of this week's propaganda directives. And they will continue to have an influence on China's direction in the future. Well, I think that's a appropriately depressing comment, Chris, to wrap up our discussion. I think there's a lot on this last topic you mentioned, which I thought was really important on looking at intellectual discourse and intellectual trends in China, not just as purely indigenous developments, but understanding how swings in global liberalism or its opposite, the rise in, in, in authoritarianism, refract through and, and impact and draw strength from discussion and discourse in China as well as events in China is an important phenomenon to understand. I hope, you know, these things often work in pendulum swings and I hope individuals like, you know, Mao Yushu will be alive to see the, the pendulums swing back. But as we look out at at least another few terms in office of the current general secretary, it's hard to see the environment shifting much. That's true. And just in conclusion, I dare not say where China is headed these days, especially while we're still in the middle of COVID and there's so much uncertainty. But I do think in, you know, in thinking about where the country is headed, in thinking about not just where intellectual life is headed, but society is headed, it's important to remember that many Chinese people at the moment may see Communist Party power and this authoritarian control that has been strengthened under Xi Jinping as a kind of safe harbor in very difficult times when COVID and international tensions are, are menacing the world and also making China feel, in a sense, besieged as well. Nonetheless, I think it's true, not just among intellectuals or liberal intellectuals, but in society as a whole, that those questions about the rights of the individual against the state and against the party certainly haven't gone away. And people's complaints about being able to voice their aspirations, their rights, their complaints, about being able to contest a local party official's decision to demolish their house or to shut down their factory or tell them to move to another village, those debates haven't been stilled. And so in considering the future of China, it's not just going to depend on Mao Yushu and his ideas, but how these ideas circulate and generate new demands among society as a whole. Yeah, well, well put, Chris. Thanks again for joining us. My pleasure, Duke. Very interesting to talk to you. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 